Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could reduce workplace injuries and save your company money with one simple safety footwear solution? Zappos at Work brings you the largest selection of safety footwear styles with free expedited shipping on every order. Our team builds your company an online storefront based on your safety needs. Get a free pair of safety shoes when you schedule a 20-minute meeting. Go to zappos.com slash Spotify to sign up. Terms and conditions apply. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yeah. It's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. This week on Red Inca, we are talking about Michael Clark. Well, I am. So again, I got the king to come back and question me on my many Clark pieces. I am Subhash Jairaman, the returning king of podcasts. Clark has always been so fascinating to me. He was the first cricketer I ever wrote a proper feature on. And so here we talk about Australia and class and chasing legendary status, LeBron and KD, Quentin Tarantino, Rick McCosker. You know, just the normal things and pretty much everything else when it comes to Michael Clark. 
Okay, we are going to talk about one of my pieces again today. So with me, I have, uh, uh, look, he's the host. I'm just going to throw it straight to him. Sabash, take over. Thank you, Jared. Thanks for uh, letting me be me again on your podcast, being you. Uh, I think that came out correct. Um, last time we talked, we talked about um, you writing that epic piece on uh, Srisant where you actually had spent time with him. And this time we're talking about Michael Clark. The pieces, since you being Australian, so it's kind of easy and you've seen him grow up, be a cricketer and all that, but you never actually spent time with him. Do you think the pieces would have been any different if you had had time with Michael Clark? And these are pieces that we're talking about right after he announced his uh, retirement from tests, after the Trent Bridge test of the uh, 2015 Ashes. And also you had written a couple of other pieces in uh, 2012 uh, for Cricket Info. The evolution of Michael Clark, and then uh, on the first issue of Night Watchman in 2013, where I think you wrote gazillion words on his wife on being on a horse. So, do you think the pieces would have been any different if you had had time to interview Clark one on one? Yes, I don't think the theme would have been different. Weirdly, I would have loved to have written Michael Clark's book more so than most cricketers, even though I don't find Michael Clark himself that interesting. I find what he was trying to achieve. And his place in Australia, as Australia was changing, really, really interesting, right? So I think if I'd spent time with him, it would have changed. But you've got to remember that, weirdly, A, we're a very similar age. I did sort of grow up with him, if you will. And I grew up as a cricket writer at the same time that he grew up as a player. So we have that. But we also have a lot of friends in common. So he's always been one of my biggest obsessions. I, was, I thought Ponting was a great player. And, you know, I grew up with Steve Waugh. And, you know, these other players coming through. But I don't think there's ever been a player that I was kind of more obsessed at trying to work out than Michael Clark, because he seemed to have so many highs. We talked about before, didn't you, at the start? So many highs and so many lows. Mm -hmm. And the perception of him never really sort of matched what he was doing at any time. And he seemed to have this weird place in Australian culture. So I think if I knew him, it would be different. But having said that, I have spent some time with him since I wrote these pieces. Oh, like on tours, you know, like in India, I think we might have um, spent some time at a bar together. We've chatted in press boxes, not overly friendly, but, you know, for 20 minutes, we happen to be sitting next to each other. So you strike up a conversation sort of thing. And I'm not sure that I, anything I got from that wouldn't be in the piece. The only thing that I probably would have put in a little bit more of, which I think is probably in the Night Watchman piece, mm. but, it, but I don't know if it's in the, the last Crick Info piece, which is sort of my definitive Clark piece, I suppose. A lot of cricketers sort of said that they've known him in their whole life, right? And mm -hmm. he's been to their weddings and they've known his girlfriends and they've been to his backyard for barbecues, all that sort of stuff. And when you ask them what he stands for and what, what inspires him and, and all that sort of stuff, they're just like, he doesn't stand for anything. He's like one of those people that always wanted to be in politics but doesn't actually have any key political beliefs. Mm -hmm. I think that having spent time with him, Maybe I've spent 45 minutes talking to him now in my life. Sure. still not a lot. I kind of get that a bit more. And I didn't want to go into it massively because that's a completely third-hand thing. Do you know what I mean? When someone tells you that, you don't know. If, maybe you've got four people who are really close to him and they're all dicks and they don't like him because he got more girlfriends than them or whatever it is. But now having spent time with him, you really do sort of see that coming off. There's that great interview with Tom Cruise, right, where mm -hmm. Tom Cruise is asked a question about Scientology by the interviewer. And he doesn't know how to answer it because in his brain, he's going through all the best responses. <laughs> I felt Michael Clark is very much like that. And it's why 
go to his Twitter feed. When he's commentating from a ground, right, something will happen at a ground. And 20 minutes after that, he puts up a tweet about it. By that stage, he's had a chance to read the room a little bit, see where everyone mm-hmm. is. And in conversation, that makes him very stilted. So he's always worried about where that is. He's I- constantly worried about how he was perceived, how the perception of his intelligence or lack of it might be coming through if he didn't think through what he was going to say or write. Yeah. Exactly. And I think I feel that a bit more now, but I don't see that as, it's not just how he's perceived. I honestly think he doesn't really have a strong personality in that kind of way. He he does have a strong personality in in other ways, but I don't think he has a lot of views about the world. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I don't think he has those sorts of things. So I think having spent a little bit of time with him, perhaps that would have come in more. I always thought that him and Ponting would be really interesting books because they sort of came through a period of time where Australia went from being very working class and certainly thinking of itself as being very working class to being incredibly middle class, right? And they both lived that and they were completely two different people in that Ponting tried to maintain the blokey image. Part of it was just accidental. He likes greyhounds, yeah? If you like greyhounds, it's hard to be a posh bloke as a general <laughs> rule, right? Whereas Clark went the other way. And I always thought they, they would be very interesting. But whether they noticed that their Australia was changing would be interesting. So if, I think if I'd spent more time with Clark, that's where I would have gone a little bit more. But I'm not sure he would have been able to give me what I wanted. In some ways, not knowing him probably helped because I could detach myself completely from Clark and look at him as a figure of cricket culture. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I went with him. Having said that, I think he's read the piece, although I've never got that you know, completely sure, but I think he's read the piece. I would love to actually, now he's read the piece, talk to him about it and write a piece about everything I've written, but with his insights. I'm just gotcha. not sure it would be as interesting as the actual original piece, just because he's not as interesting in that way. Sure. I mean, he reminds me a lot, especially after listening to your descriptions and you know, reading your writings on Clark, it reminds me a lot of Tendulkar, really. Very guarded, very conscious of how he's going to be perceived whether he's going to be seen as controversial because that could hurt the brand, you know? Mm. So, and it was a thing. It's only now that a lot more of the athletes and stuff take actual stands on things. But there was a time, you know, Michael Jordan, I think he said, oh, Republicans buy sneakers too, you know? So very much about, uh, we've got to stay on topic, Mm. stay on brand, cannot do anything that hurts sales of sneakers in Jordan's case or bats in case of Clark or Tendulkar, or whatever, Pepsi, Mm. Visa, whatever. So uh, he reminds me a lot, Clark on his good days, could rival anybody uh, in the history of cricket in terms of attractiveness of his uh, batsmanship. But he never really reached even the levels of Tendulkar. I'm not saying Tendulkar has not, you know, but, you know, he's a great batsman. But Clark had uh, expressed intentions early on that he would be iconic, he would be legendary, uh, he would never want to be dropped from the Aussie team. And of course, he was dropped from the team a couple of times, at least, uh, if I can remember correctly. And I don't believe he is a legendary cricketer or iconic. Where do you see Clark as a batsman? Forget about world cricket, just with an Australian batsman, you know, Greg Chappell, Ricky Ponting, Don Bradman, of course. Where do you see him? He's probably not in the top 10, is he? He, he batted throughout the best batting era, probably, of, of world cricket, other than uh, Bradman's era. Um, and it's almost, it was almost as good as Bradman's era. That, so I think he certainly benefited from that. He batted during a period where the pitches were at their very flattest, I think, of, of probably of all time. 
So you, you have to factor that in. He also averaged, what, over 20 more at home than he did away from home? More than 20. Was it more, more than 20? More than 20. According 23, to 24? Yeah. Him and Mahalo J. Wardner were the, the two batsmen that probably benefited the most from, you couldn't get them out at home. And away from mm-hmm. home, they were good travellers. That's the best you could say about them. I think Mahalo was t- uh, 30s and, and Clark was about 40. Michael Clark, a good traveller. <laughs> Autobiography, biography, however. <laughs> um, I wonder why he didn't get me to write his book. But um, <laughs> I think that, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned a bunch of names there. I don't think he was a better player than Steve Waugh. I think he could argue that if you look at their, the time at which they both batted, David Boone was a better Ooh. batsman than him. But David Boone's skill sets into the 2000s when pitches were flat, Sure. I'm not sure you'd get him out, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, there's a lot of guys who have poorer records because they're playing in the 80s and 90s, like Atherton's another one. Whereas I think if you move them into that flatter period, they would change. So I'm not sure he's a better player than Boone. He's not a better play, uh, batsman than Steve War, I don't think, if you factor in those things again. Um, Ian Chappell, we probably, Ian Chappell's absolute best cricket was maybe after he wasn't playing for Australia anymore. Mm. I would say he was about the same level as Ian Chappell. And Ian Chappell in even though they're completely different players, I think if you look at pure numbers, him and Michael Clark are very similar in that when you watch them bat, you think these guys are the, the cream of the crop, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at their numbers and what they did in their careers, you can't help but think they probably just didn't get the most out of themselves on a runs per innings basis, right? And there are other things. You know, Chappelle sort of changed the way that Australians looked at cricket. Um, and he was also very much, the way he played was, I'm going to put a stamp on this game, which means mm-hmm. that you're risking your wicket a little bit more than than a normal player. Um, and, you know, Clark was was something else. But the fact that Clark never became a number three is a big deal in Australia as well. Because if you're the biggest swinging dick in town, you come in at number three for Australia. Yeah. Other countries are a bit different, aren't they? You know, I think that England never had that number three fetish. I would say India never had it on the same level that Australia um, had it. And then you also have that big period where, what, Lara, Callis, Tendulkar, Shiv eventually, none of mm-hmm. them batted three, right? They all batted four and five. In Australia, though, three is still the spot that you are yeah. supposed to bat. And even Smith, it's like Smith gets a tiny bit of flack because of it as well, even though now, realistically, in modern cricket, four is the new three, right? Yes. But people in Australia are still like, doesn't bat three, though, does he? And, and that was a big thing against Steve Waugh as well. Huge thing in Steve Waugh's career and probably Border's career as well, weirdly. Mm-hmm. We forget about it now because they did go on to be in le- Legends. But So I think that if you factor in all those things, I don't think, and you know, you'd have to go through all the players of all time, but I don't think you'd have him in the top 10 of Australian batting. Now, that being said, fuck me sideways, Australia's had some batsmen. Yes, true, 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 true. Australia's the best cricket team that there has ever been over the history of the game, right? Fair enough. South Africa might have been able to change that. They used all their yeah. players, and um, apartheid went differently for them in that period. But really, and you know, West Indies I might think, have. Had, I think that that's a, a if apartheid had gone differently. Yeah, that's well. I mean, like if, if they kept playing, I I, sure. I mean, from that point of view, you know, if they kept playing, eventually you would think that the way that the world worked, one way or another, they would have filtered in black players eventually. Sure. Anyway, they deserve not to play. They wouldn't even play the West Indies. You know, or, the, or India or Pakistan. So as far as I was concerned, they should have been kicked out for that. But mm-hmm. you could argue that West Indies had a higher high. But over the history of cricket, Australia's had the most. So if you're saying Clark's not in the top 10 batsmen of all time, I don't think that's a slight on him. But if you're saying naturally talented, geez, it's hard to argue that, you know, he's not up there with Greg Chappell, 
with Bradman, with Neil Harvey, you know, the very peak yeah. batting talents. I mean, I would say he was slightly behind Ponting, but of modern batsmen, you basically got Smith, Ponting, and Clark. I would say natural talent. Those are the three most naturally talented. I just think there are other players who got more out of themselves. I, I think Border and War far more flawed than than Michael Clark and made more runs in tougher eras. So you have to put that together. He's definitely an Australian great. I think that's very fair. But in the way that hmm. maybe Jimmy Anderson and VVS Laxman are not global greats of the game, I would say Michael Clark is in that same um, headspace. I mean, VVS Laxman obviously has a signature innings, and as does Clark. Um, were you there at the ground when he made the uh, 161 in South Africa? Yeah, the um, uh, Cape Town, yeah? Yeah, when he got hit all over the body by... Uh... Yeah, he, he, Clark was, you know, his debut in Bangalore, what, 151? Um, mm. So he's always made very pretty runs. So even though he didn't make a shit ton of runs in first class, you knew he was good for very pretty runs. Um, and he had made some really good runs uh, and then loss of form and all that. And then, you know, when he makes it, like, when you're watching that innings, what about Clark did you learn that day? Yeah, it's quite an interesting one because of the whole pretty boy image and i mean on and off the field really it was very hard to ever think about him as a tough cricketer which is unfair because he was actually quite a big sledger <laughs> get ready for the broken fucking arm yeah but even before yeah. that if you look at him as a young kid he was always chirping mm. he's quite cocky um to think that he wasn't tough is a weird thing but because of the the frosted tips in his hair and and the way he played i mean he had a very pretty way of playing i think in the piece i might say that you know there was sort of like a combination of Mark War and, and Michael Slater. And, you know, he's a very New South Wales pretty batsman. You know, comes mm-hmm. from that long line of Neil Harvey and all those sorts of guys. So I think that because of all that, you, you focus on that. And that era where he starts to get hit on the body a lot is because his back was gone, right? Mm-hmm. And there's we never talk about this in cricket. And it'd be great to interview him, Athers, um, and there's a few other guys out there. Once your back goes, you can't get away from the short ball, right? It is a completely different game of cricket. Look at, you know, someone like Manus uh, Labuschagne, the way he can contort, contort his body to move away from the short ball. Once you can't do that, you're fucking a target. <laughs> you know? And if you're like Athens or, or Clark, who were incredibly gifted young players, no one's been able to lay a glove on you. So you basically, there's a Muhammad Ali thing, isn't there, of going mm-hmm. from no one can lay a punch on you to suddenly rope-a-dope and you just have to take them. That, the psycho- psychological thing of that is, and I think that's what I noticed really, is before then, you would hear about the back. That was the first time I saw the back, really, and I got it. And I was like, you have to be in a different headspace as a cricketer. And you see this all the time. You see, uh, you know, Jimmy's lost, what, seven miles an hour probably on his pace. He was probably mm-hmm. low 90s at, at times when, when he was younger. And you become that different player. Uh, Peter Siddle was an out-and-out fastballer. So you see it with fastballs. You see it with spinners. You see it Warren went from putting all those revs on the ball to not putting that many revs on the ball because he had to change. Yeah. The difference here is that you've gone from someone who can doesn't have to worry about the short ball really that much in their life to someone whose whole life is facing short balls. And I think what Mornay did really in that spell was just sort of put a spotlight on it. And then you realize that he is a different kind of person than perhaps his image um, comes across as. But for, for all the slurs that you could say at Michael Clark, there are a lot of guys who probably have that back injury who probably retire at 32 mm-hmm. because uh, they just like, this is not worth it. <laughs> it's not, I can barely get out of bed in the morning. Was it the uh, Australia India series um, when he was basically stretching his back? 
constantly just to stand in the field. Was it the 14, 14, 15? Yeah, it must have been 14, 15. You know, and I've had bad back problems most of my life. I'm, I'm aware of what that's like. So if you're having those issues, I think that's a different kind of toughness. But it's not as sexy as, you know, Rick McCosker's broken jaw or... Elise Perry's broken leg, or Ryan Harris having no knee cartilage in either knee. <laughs> it's just not as sexy as those things, is it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Because you can't see a back injury in, in the same way. And I think that Mornay probably helped people understand that there was something more to Michael Clark at that point. Now, there's a whole flip side to this, right? Where you mm-hmm. suddenly go, wait a minute, though. How much is Michael Clark just doing that? Because Michael Clark has followed all of these things. So I'm gonna, yes. you know, you and I are both basketball fans. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. You're, you're, you're literally wearing the greatest point guard in the NBA's um, uh, jersey today, Ben Simmons. I can't remember what city he's from, but what an incredible man Ben Simmons is. <laughs> um, I watched his old man play actually, uh, mm. um, uh, who was a decent basketball, a bit undersized, weirdly because his son's massive, bit undersized for the NBA, mm-hmm. but very good player himself. Anyway, I always think about, <laughs> I, and it wasn't. I don't think it was you I had this fight with, but when LeBron left. Cleveland, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And he clearly went to Miami to get championships. Championships. Right. Yeah. And I said, and everyone was slagging him off. Do you remember? It was horrible. Like everyone was having a yes. go at it. And I went on Twitter defending him. And I basically said, uh, we tell these guys that they can only be legends if they win championships, right? And he goes, yep. And he looks around and he's given Cleveland a fair run at this point. And he looks around and goes, I'm not going to win a championship here, right? And so I'm going to leave. Fast forward a couple of years later, and and Kevin Durant does the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. And again, we tell these guys, you, if you don't leave, you, and then the minute they leave to go to a, a team that's going to win them a championship, everyone goes, you can't leave. You have to do it. You have to do it the authentic way, right? Yes. I always, I didn't make the piece, the LeBron thing, but I remember thinking about the LeBron thing when it came to Clark. Clark knew he was going to play cricket for Australia when he was 16, maybe 14, mm. right? He was mm. that good. Everyone in Sydney cricket. If you're good in Sydney cricket, right? Fuck, that's it. You're gonna play. You're gonna play for Australia because that that is how it is. Even if you don't quite make it in the end, that's how they believe because so many of them have been. It is other than perhaps what uh, maybe Chennai, um, Mumbai, Mumbai. If you if it's Mumbai, if you're good in Mumbai cricket, you will play for India. Yeah, I suppose that's why I always thought of Chennai because of the, the level of the competition. But yeah, you're probably right. M- Mumbai, Mumbai is the one. That's yeah. the one. Like, Yorkshire, I mean, back you in have the a ready-made uh, comparison to Rohit Sharma. You know? Yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty. So if you if you make it in Sydney cricket, you make it in Mumbai or you make it in Yorkshire back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. You're basically going to play. So, so at that stage, if you're Michael Clark, you're not thinking about will I make it or how will I make it or, or, or you know, when will I make it? You're literally going, I'm going to make it. So then you're starting to think of baggy green culture that comes in. Yeah? Mm. And he grew up when Steve Wall was masturbating about the baggy green at every <laughs> opportunity, right? I yes. mean, before Steve Wall, the baggy green was a thing that someone wore. And suddenly it became the image of Australian cricket. And yes. I always think of, uh, I've now, so I'm going to use LeBron and, and Durant, and now I'm going to go to um, Quentin Tarantino. Sure. Right? Quentin Tarantino grew like up. Like you do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino grew up in that era where you had Scorsese and you had Coppola um, mm-hmm. and you had all those big guys and even someone like Hal Ashby and, and Sam Peckinpah. They didn't, those guys mm-hmm. didn't make a lot of films. When they made a film, it was a film, right? It was a huge event and they, and they were all about their legacy, right? And, sure. and when you read magazines uh, about, about movies, which people like me and Quentin Tarantino did, we, we, we got, it, it was part of it. It was like, 
every time you make a film, it has to be like Coppola. It has to be yeah. the film that takes the head off the industry and it has to be a yes. huge moment, right? Clark had the exact same thing with Australian cricket. Now, he's sitting there as this talented guy. So when he comes through, he is literally being brainwashed to believe that everything is about legacy and image and everything. So everything he does has to fit that, that thing. So he's not trying to be an Australian cricketer. He's really clear about this really early on. I do not want to be dropped, right? Mm -hmm. And that all comes from all of this nonsense. So rather than him trying to be a cricketer, so once he gets to that Mornay Morkel thing, you can look at it from two perspectives. You can go, wow, he was actually tougher than we thought, which is fair. But the other one is, would he be sitting there doing that if it wasn't yeah. for the fact that he's been trained by Australian cricket to think that that's what you have to do? And it's a really interesting thing. And, you know... Uh, I, I, you know, to go back to my own personal life, there's a moment when we're filming Death of a Gentleman and we're in the hotel in the UAE, right? And we know we're about to be thrown out and we know that mm -hmm. this could ruin our careers. But me and Sam are sitting next to each other and Sam leans over to me and he says, if we hadn't have watched all those action movies in the 90s, <laughs> would we be here right now? And I was like, probably not. Right. And you do get trained into that whole thing. So I, I think all of those sorts of things always play out with Michael Clark. And that's why he's such an interesting guy to talk about or write about, because it's like, even when he does a great thing, there's so many different <laughs> facets of it and how it fits into Australian cricket culture and Australian culture. I want to read a couple of things from your pieces. And then I would, you know, we could discuss on that. Uh, human relationships had never been his forte. Shield players would mock him as someone who would only talk to his agent or bad sponsor. Some players considered him shell of a human, a cricketing Richie Rich who had never lived a real life. They whispered that he was hard to relate to and they saw him as aloof. Few ever said he was a bad person. It just seemed that he was hard to know. The paragraph I just want to quickly read. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't hard enough. He wasn't humble enough. He wasn't working class enough. He wasn't what they wanted. And deep down, he wasn't what he wanted. And as he wanted to be loved. He was averaging 15 test cricket that did not get him the love, the love he craved, the love he thought he deserved. So you were talking about it, this idea of legendary cricketer in Australia wearing a baggy green. Um, did he set himself up for failure by setting these impossible standards or things in his head that he has to be remembered as this? He has to, because he, you're never going to be legendary. I mean, you're never going to beat 99.94. By sure num sheer numbers, you'll never be the greatest Australian batsman ever. Now it's always yeah. about the image. How how are people going to remember you? If people are going to ignore the numbers and then remember you for your achievements on the field of, you know, you need to be able to generate warm and cuddly feelings in your loins when you think about these players. Uh, <laughs> I just made very sexy. But he never engendered that kind of feelings across the spectrum Forget about middle class and working class Aussies. It's just around the world. He rubbed people mm. the wrong way. I mean, think about this, right? 2015 World Cup, New Zealand were the darlings of the tournament. And they're going to play at MCG, the final. Clark, there is buzz going around saying that uh, Clark might be announcing his retirement from ODIs. Big fucking deal. He wasn't a great ODI player. Sure, he was the captain of Australian team that is in the final. But who gives a shit? Apparently, a lot of people did. And because <laughs> press conference room was jam-packed. Uh, sure, it was the World Cup final, but Clark could turn it to make it look like it was because Clark was going to announce the retirement. It was full. You can't tell what's real, what's not, what's staged in the Michael Clark's life. Similarly, 2015 Ashes, the piece that you wrote right after Trent Bridge test, 
you can tell us about how remarkably coincident that he announces his retirement and then you have this 10,000-word piece of Michael Clark ready. Once again, he England regained the ashes. The talk is all about Michael Clark. Even Michael Atherton in the post-match uh, presentation is asking Alistair Cook about Michael Clark's uh, retirement decision. So Michael Clark had a way of turning everything about himself, which I'm sure rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So uh, he will never be, in my books anyway, considered as a great batsman. Sure, he had his moments, but I would never consider him a great batsman because number one, the numbers don't back it up. Number two, he was a dick. <laughs> the dick rule. By that, um, Wally Hammond did uh, Bradman, I don't, or Grace. I think they are all dicks. So it's good that none of those are great. Bradman had the numbers to back him up, you know. Bradman had the numbers. <laughs> uh, it, I think he was always trying to manufacture everything. Go back to sort of what you, the, the stuff that you read out sort of at the start, essentially. He's always trying to manufacture everything. Maybe it's because he doesn't have a strong human personality, right? But mm-hmm. you can't really manufacture being a legend or being a great. Like, it's a really weird thing to manufacture. Like, you can think about someone like Ivan Lendl, right? Ivan Lendl mm-hmm. was like, there's no doubt in my mind that Ivan Lendl was like, by the end of my career, I want to be one of the greatest tennis players of all time. But Ivan Lendl went about that in this sort of robotic sort of mindset of every single thing I do with my body, with my mind, with my time is going to be towards this sort of thing. People sort of respect that. Richard Hadley is another one, right? Mm-hmm. People sort of respect that. Even if they go, bit of a dick, Ivan Lendl, bit of a dick, uh, uh, Richard Hadley. They respect that. If you are seen to be then trying to manipulate your image straight away. It's like, that's a big problem in Australian society anyway. It's completely, I mean, so much of this with Michael Clark is that he held a mirror up to Australian society. You know, one of my favorite things with Australian society is like, we pretend we're, oh, down, you know, we're salt of the earth people. Here's me mm-hmm. with my ute. Mate, it's a car, right? <laughs> I don't say, here's me with my hatchback. I don't mm-hmm. say, here's me with my station wagon. The only car that anyone ever says, you know, makes a specific mention of in Australia is Ute because Ute, that's what the working man drives. I'm a working man. I've got a Ute. Half the blokes I knew who had Utes worked in offices. Like, it's complete nonsense, right? And I sure. think that the problem with Clark was he couldn't even hide the, th- that, that side of him. It was right there. I want to be a legend <laughs> and this is what I'm going to do. And I think that that is a huge problem. And as you said, that goes well beyond Australian stuff as well. Like, I think that you and I both know that Kumar Sangakkara is a very calculated human being. Of course. He, he was trained to be a lawyer. So what, what do you expect? Yeah. But there's, you don't see the seams. Does that make sense? You don't hmm. see that, that, that side of things. Now, other than Kumar changing his accent when he talks to Western people than Asian people, which may not mm-hmm. even be his fault, to be fair, because that is, sure. that's some, sometimes that's just an, uh, a, Happens. an authentic accenting but other than that there's no real seams with kumar but you and i both know that you know kumar is not the uh completely uh uh you know the godlike figure that a lot of people see him as but he has done everything he can in his power to do that but he hasn't done it in a way that clark did it he hasn't done it in this showboaty way he hasn't done it in this way that we can all oh god clark's doing that sort of thing again and i think that that all comes that that all played out in his life over and over and over again and it's very hard to overlook those sorts of things i think if you're being very fair to him i don't think he would one reason i found this piece very easy to write 
and why I'd written the three pieces on Clark. And they've all mm-hmm. kind of, all three of those pieces are probably themed in the in a similar way. Um, I only, I only read the, the the last one. I couldn't find the Night Watchman one, and I honestly had forgotten about the one for Crick Info in 2012 until you brought it up. But um, you were busy making a documentary at the time as well. So exactly, you, I probably just spat it out. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, I've I've got a cousin who uh, is you know very working class background, very similar to Michael Clark. Uh, very talented guy. He was a very talented footballer. Didn't quite make it to the next level, but talented guy, uh, good-looking guy, liked to look good. Now he does a lot of weights, you know, big buff guy. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, like, he came, you know, uh, he came from a, you know, his father was a printer. Um, his mother is a factory worker. Great people, intelligent people, but not not <laughs> not even hinting at higher education type type things. And he would hang out with these people in the, in the posh parts of, of Melbourne and go to the nice nightclubs and drink the $10 drinks and uh, all that sort of stuff. I remember having a chat to him and just going, why? Why do you do that? We've got a local pub. Our local pub's great. It's the same beer. You're paying, you know, all this extra money. And he could never explain it, but his basic thing was, are we not told in Australia that we are supposed to, we're supposed to make good? And mm. he's like, if this is the nicer area, then I want to drink in the nicer area. And it is. I remember. It, uh, do you know who Eddie Maguire is? Yes, of course. So Eddie Maguire, for those who don't know, is a huge. He was a journalist in Aussie Rules Football. He grew up um, around the corner from my dad. Uh, so northern suburbs boy or northwestern suburbs in Broadie. Made good as a journalist. Then he became a, a TV uh, presenter, a, a filmmaker, uh, and then went on to run Collingwood Football Club. He then went on to run the Melbourne Stars. He's almost like the unofficial president of Melbourne. Right, <laughs> and he, he's a bit of a dick, and there's lots of problems with him. Um, you know, Google uh, Adam Goods and Eddie Maguire. There, there's problems with him. Eddie Maguire came to the local northern suburb schools to go, come and give speeches about how I I made it, and you guys can all make it. All right, and it was very much he moved from Broadmeadows, the part of Melbourne that people take the most piss out of. And you know, I'm I, I'm sort of a de facto Brody boy because my dad grew up there mm-hmm. and I played my cricket there. And then he moved to Turak, which is where the rich people live in Melbourne. Right. Yeah. And there was always that thing of him always going on and on about being a Broadway boy, but moving to Turak. He came and did this speech and I was, it wasn't at my school, but it was at the school next door and all the troubled kids. So it was what one whole school was there. And then all the troubled kids from all the other schools were brought in. And I was uh, sadly one of the troubled kids. So I was brought in. And I remember so clearly him being like, work hard, be smart, move your way up because otherwise you'll be stuck here forever. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole thing was, like, that's what you're supposed to do as a working class kid. You are supposed to move out of these suburbs. But the minute you move out of these suburbs, and it happened yep. to Eddie Maguire, Warren went through this a little bit as well, although we, we forgave Warren because he was so ridiculous at it. But the minute you move out of those suburbs and you buy the nice car and you went on, then you're like a, tr- a class traitor, right? And so Clark had to handle all of that sort of stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, we were trained to think that we were sp- Well, I, you know, I had a mate. Uh, who I remember him getting up so clearly in class and being like, what do you want to do with your career? And this kid was such a talented athlete, such a talented student, uh, just a smart, lovely guy. And I thought this guy could, you know, work in politics or he could run his own company. He could do anything, travel the world. And he's like, I'm going to become an accountant. And I was like, you're going to be what now? Because, you know, my father was a bricklayer. So I want to become an accountant because that means I won't have to lay bricks. And I was like, you could be anything, mate. And there was that whole thing of he wanted to be, just that next level up so that no one would take the piss out of it. It was such an interesting thing of the way that people looked at. Clark grew up in all of that, right? Mm-hmm. He grew up in all of that. And you still, listen, now people in Australia still think it's a working class country. It must be close to 
one of the richest, most prosperous, easiest to live in countries on earth. And mm-hmm. you go back and you listen to new, uh, you know, especially if you're white, yeah, outside the indigenous population and maybe new refugees. It is mm-hmm. such a great place to live, where you sure. know, in so many different ways, the hourly rate of a of a human being, the minimum hourly rate in Australia is obscene compared to the rest of the world. It's a completely different wor- a world from everyone else, and we don't see ourselves as that. And I think Clark was kind of. He, sh- he 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 held that mirror up. And I think if you look at a wider cricket point, it was the same thing. You can't tell me that Ricky Ponting didn't want to be a legend, right? You can't tell me that Sachin didn't want to be a god. You can't tell me that, um, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, that, uh, Joe Root. Ian Bell. Then, Ian, uh, well, Ian Bell sure. probably, but a lot of them think that way, right? Kevin yeah, Peterson, yeah, right? Yeah, the difference course. is that Clark just put it so much out there that you couldn't ignore it that it becomes part of his narrative. And, you know, I don't think he meant to do it. His timing, he had the best timing when it comes to cover drives <laughs> that you'll ever see. And he had the worst timing when it comes to making himself look like a dick, right? So mm-hmm. let's look at a bunch of those things that you've mentioned. Sure. He retires on the eve of the World Cup, which is, well, look at me, everyone. As you said, he's not a great one-day player. If he retired yes. at the end of the World Cup, it would have been completely fine. If he retired a week after Australia had won, it would have been perfect. I mean, Australia didn't even need him. Right, because in the early part of the tournament, he wasn't even playing, and Australia was just rolling along just fine with uh, George Bailey as the captain. Yeah, so very- I love George. <laughs> um, I should get him on this podcast. You've got that. Then you've got the, as you said, again, retiring in the middle of the test. I, I wonder how much of that it was going to break, and he came out. But again, he changes the narrative on himself. You only have to look at the amount of times in his life that he went out close to a break, as well. Like he had this <laughs> incredible timing where. Like, it's funny. So the entire Australian team would collapse, right? But he would collapse just before T. Or he would go out, I mean, the Adelaide test in 10-11 when he went out, yeah. you know, just before Kevin stuff. Peterson. Yeah, and he made himself a bit of a dick for many different reasons. But if you just look at the timing there, Australia was already ballsing that test up. And Clark makes the whole ballsing thing about him. <laughs> like his ability <laughs> to do that is so kind of comical that he sort of, he's always uh, been able to do that. But yeah, so it's it, that side of timing thing is quite interesting. But yeah, the, that 2015 thing and, and the way that piece came about is I had written the piece in 2012, mm-hmm. which was a good I have no idea if it was a good piece, actually. It might be shit. I haven't read it. I don't remember writing it. So I can't say it was a good piece. But it was a good attempt at whatever I was trying to do. I'd certainly written a big piece about a, lo- a couple of big pieces about it. Yeah, you can't see, but Savash is saying it was okay. He's shaking his hand in the middle. Um I'd certainly written some big pieces on him in Cricket with Balls, and he became a quite a regular feature of Cricket with Balls as well. Uh, because Cricket with Balls, is as much anything, was a comedy thing, wasn't it? And he's a funny guy to write about, so you're going to take the piss out of him. <laughs> I mean, before, you know, it's not going to be included in this podcast, but before we did this podcast, your first thing was, are we just going to take the piss out of Michael Clark the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I get that. So we, uh, there's a Wright Thompson angle to all this as well. So I wrote that piece in 2012 and thinking back on it, I probably wasn't happy with it because I, if I wrote another piece a year later, I was probably trying to get it right. But I remember having a big chat with Wright Thompson where he was just like, look, you're basically cornering the market on the Bill, being the Bill Simmons of cricket. He said, but have you noticed that no one's writing the definitive pieces on, on any of these people? And he was right. I think Rahul Bhattacharya might have written the Shiv piece around that time. Mm-hmm. Christian Ryan had popped in with a couple of pieces, but neither of those guys were working day cricket writers either. They would pop in with one incredible piece and then sort of disappear again. I know Raul had been, but even when he was a workaday cricket writer, he probably didn't do that as much. And Wright had a very good point. Like in one in the T20 uh, World Cup, 
he did what? Chris Gale, he did a, a decent piece on him. He did an incredible piece on Mahela and Kumar. Uh, mm-hmm. He'd done the Sachin piece before that. There's another one I think that he did as well. And he was like nailing it. And he's just like, these, these are, and I was like, okay, so I'm going to write a definitive piece. What's it going to be? And I went straight to Michael Clark. So a mm-hmm. lot of people now think of me as this long form feature writer. It all started with that conversation with Wright and Michael Clark because those mm-hmm. two things match together. So then I write the big piece in 2013. And at that stage, it was my first big feature on cricket. And I did not understand feature writing at all. Uh, I understood Michael Clark and I understood cricket writing, but I didn't understand feature writing. Um, and then 2015 comes along. And I think, you know, it was Nottingham, wasn't it? You said. Yeah. Bridge. Yeah. So Nottingham is one of those places where if you are working in cricket, like you can be walking around town and MS, during a test and MS Dhoni walks past you. Mm-hmm. It's not that big a place. Of course. There aren't that many hotels. There aren't that many bars. <laughs> there aren't that many restaurants. You need a whole podcast to talk about Nottingham hotel, hotels. <laughs> I do, yeah. You should and have bar- George on it. And bars, to be fair, as well. <laughs> God, that's so hard for me not to tell the many Dobell stories. But essentially, you bump into people. And so I think I bumped into Ben Horn, who was the is he this, uh, Daily Telegraph in Sydney, yep, right up? Yep, yep, yep. And he's also, he was Michael Clark's ghostwriter, which is an interesting story in itself. Uh, Michael Clark essentially signed that deal to stop that newspaper taking the piss out of him. Mm-hmm. So... Ben Horn basically hints that Clark is going to go. Uh, Dan Bredick then sends me a message not long after saying he's heard a similar thing. I'm like, well, if he's ghostwriter and Bredick are thinking about this. So basically you were at that test and we were hanging out a lot. And I basically locked myself in a hotel room unless I was at play. I wrote in the mornings. I wrote all the way through the breaks and for 24 hours. And then Clark retires and my piece is basically finished, which is just fucking ideal. Because I suddenly look like a golden god and I've had mm-hmm. a day's uh, head start on everyone else. As you said, it's the middle of a series. It's the middle of England winning the, the test and everything. And I tried to put everything that I had ever felt about Michael Clark into a piece. It's probably reading it back today. I wished I'd had an extra 12 hours just so I could mm. have paired it back a little bit. But considering it was written in 24 hours, I don't think any other human being on the planet could have I mean, I don't know how many words it is. It must be seven, 8,000 words. A lot, yeah. I didn't count. Gideon wrote the on one book. Mm-hmm. it would only take me two weeks to write the on Clark book. And mm-hmm. I did actually think about it. I just didn't think anyone would buy it or want to publish it, to be honest. I, I just don't think he was of that level God or, or legend that people would have bought it. So I didn't do it. But essentially, you know, I felt like I lived with him so long at that point that it just all sort of came out of me. So it's quite interesting, the sort of the development of those sort of three pieces and how they end up as that one piece. Um, and, and it all comes down to Michael Clark's, uh, Shitty timing. <laughs> Let's uh, wrap this up. I got something on my desktop you can't see, which is that picture, the wedding picture that he tweeted out where former Mrs. Clark, Kylie, she's riding a horse in a very elaborate wedding gown and he's wearing a black suit uh, with silk tie uh, and he's carrying her uh, heels. The horse is speckled and there's a mountain in the background uh, some farm, I guess, outside uh, Sydney somewhere. It's probably Alan Jones, the shock jocks um, oh. farm. I, mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing. But it's, yeah. And, and I have these words um, from your piece. No matter how hard you tried, how perfect he thought he was, how much control he had, he was never in control of his image. There will be those who call him a great. There will be whispers. There will always be whispers. Uh, that's me adding the last part. So let's try to wrap this Michael Clark Twinkie with this image from his wedding and your words. So 
You know I was a wedding photographer. Oh, uh, I know you did something for the Pope, but I didn't know about wedding photographer. But yeah, so when I had my own film production company, one thing that we would do on weekends when we weren't mm. when we weren't doing film um, stuff is we would film weddings. And so a mm-hmm. videographer, probably more than a photographer, generally we got someone else in or, or a f- wedding photographer would bring us in uh, to do that. So I must have filmed six, seven weddings, right? Sure. Not to mention many other things. The thing about the wedding is, like, I, I kind of know what was going on. The level of detail to, to get that right usually comes from the bride, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Most often, more often than not, the, 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 the groom doesn't really care that much. Wants um, it pissed. Yeah, really? or wants to get pissed. Um, Australian weddings, <laughs> I don't know what, if you've ever been to a wedding in Australia, but they're really weird. No, no never. So you usually have the, and I don't know if this is just a Melbourne thing, but I think it's Australian-wide. It's certainly, it's a Victorian thing. You quite often have the wedding at like, you know, 10 a.m., 11 a.m., 12, hmm. 1, 2 o'clock. Then you don't have the reception doesn't start till like five or six o'clock. Hmm. And you have these big sort of periods in the middle where you like have to go to the pub on your own or some people go home. Um, and it's this weird sort of in-between time. And I've been to heaps of weddings like this in, in, in my life mm-hmm. in, in Australia. And, and I've now been to weddings in the UK. They don't seem to have it. So I think it's an Australian thing. I don't know if it works in, in, in other cultures. But Sri Lankan, the Sri Lankan weddings I went to in Australia, generally it was all in one thing. But the, the Western weddings um, were a bit different. So how far did they go from where they were getting married? How much time was spent? It looks like there's a makeup well, artist. Well, they had a horse. They could ride the horse to wherever they wanted to go. My guess is there's a lighting person there from how perfect mm-hmm. that image is. Mm-hmm. It just sort of wraps Michael Clark up perfectly, not because he got a good wedding photo, because lots of people do that, and he's not the only athlete to put out the perfect wedding photo or the perfect – how many athletes put out that perfect photo? There, is he barefoot? No, he's still wearing his shoes, but he's carrying her heels. Carrying her heels. The carrying her heels thing. I knew there was a shoe thing. It's also set up and natural – He's such a good bloke. He will carry her heels. Yes. And do you just see what I'm saying? You can see the seams. You can <laughs> see the seams at all times. There's no way you could be a person like you or me, right? <laughs> who is a bit cynical, who is a bit world weary, who's always trying to get to the truth of things. There's no way you can look at that photo and not be like, oh, he's done it again. He's done it again. Look at him. He can't help himself. And, and and that's why I end with that. And I didn't want to take the piss out of that photo because, fuck, they're two people in love trying to take a photo. And he's a professional athlete. You know, he had a good photographer. He probably did have a lighting person. He probably did have a makeup person. All that sort of stuff. A stylist probably for both of them as well. I get all that, <laughs> sure, right? That's, sure, sure. Part, that's part of the thing. Yep. Sh- Shane Warne has that, um, you know, Kevin Peterson have that. A lot of top-level athletes. LeBron. You know, I'm sure. I mean, look at yeah. the Cam Newton, um, uh, what is it, all or nothing series. Cam Newton says, I wear a different hat every day or a different outfit every day. I get that. that. That's all okay. But there's something about all of that coming together for Michael Clark in that one moment. I remember when Michael Clark retired and he came to India for the 2016 tour and he brought with him two people. One person's job was to film him on a mobile phone for social media stuff. And the other person's job was, I don't know what the other person's job was. He flew two people out to hold a camera, which wasn't a camera, which was a mobile phone, and put it on a tripod. He could have done that himself. It's just that there's always people around him. There's always this extra layer of everything. And it's just he's always like that. And I actually think that 
he's a very honest representation of where Australia was in that period. But there's a part of me that's just like, I fucking understand why Simon Kadic choked him. <laughs> I'm surprised we talk so much about Clark and this is the first time Kato's name comes up. Simon Kadic is not like a violent man. Do you know? What I mean? Like as a general. Nice like within, within a, he's not Andrew Simons, right? Andrew Simons, there are so many. I don't know why all the stories of Andrew Simons haven't come out, but one day I'll write up a bunch of them. But Jesus Christ, there's some stories about Andrew Simons that I think maybe enough time has passed and I can convince enough people to go on the record about, right? And there's no millions of stories about Kadich than that. Kadich is a smart guy. I mean, I, I was the one who suggested ABC go after him because I thought he, he's such an intelligent person. Mm-hmm. And yet Simon Kadich strangled him, right? It wasn't Haddon. <laughs> It True. wasn't. It wasn't Roy. It wasn't even Ponting. It was Simon Cadditch. I find that so interesting. So I just, for me, he's one of the most fascinating people ever within cricket, and he's not fascinating in himself. It's almost everything that drips off Michael Clark is so fascinating. I mean, we have gone all the way through here and not mentioned Lara Bingle's name. I mean, the levels of, oh my god, we haven't talked about the story, the Michael Clark story. I forgot the other time I hung out with him. Oh, let's wrap that up on. Go for it. This is the final final thing, and we're out. This is it. This is how we finish. Okay. 2011-12, we are out with uh, making the Death of a Gentleman and doing Crick Info stuff. So it's me and Sam and our crew, uh, Acor, Johnny Blank, uh, Frankie Kelly, all of us. I think that's all five of us that traveled around. We're making this film. We become a little bit closer with the guys because we have to film a few interviews with them. And, and Eddie, we're with Eddie. They see us with Eddie all the time. And they see us with the Cricket Australia um, guys. And we're doing all those sorts of things. So we probably had more access on that tour than I've almost ever had before. Eddie messages us after the Adelaide test. So Australia won 4 0, didn't they? Is that right? No, 3 0. Was the Adelaide test a win? 4 0. Yeah, 4 0. It was 4 0. Yeah. And it's quite a big deal for them to beat. They thought the Indian team was quite good. Them beating India, you know, at that stage, 4-0, they were quite excited about it. So they have a big night. So we finish filming. We're all exhausted. We go to a pub and get drunk. So Eddie Cowan goes to sleep. So we don't hang out with him after this. And then he wakes up when all the players are going to the nightclub. So he's already drunk, got a hangover, and is now back at a nightclub. And he says, we're at this nightclub. Bring everyone. So we go around to this nightclub, and they have a VIP room. And so it's in Adelaide. It's a dingy nightclub. The VIP room is in no way nice. Anyway, we're not allowed into the VIP room because we're not dressed for a nightclub because we've just come straight from the ground and I've got shorts and a T-shirt on and I got probably wearing my hat back then. The other guys are dressed the same. So we send a message to Eddie. Go, look, we're in the nightclub, but we're downstairs at the bar. Eddie comes downstairs to the bar. Suddenly all the Australian players come downstairs to the bar and they're partying just with the normal folks, no longer in the VIP room. And it gets messy. See, I always refer to this as like, the closest night I've ever had to something from the movie The Hangover. <laughs> and so we are like at one stage, Brad Haddon pours, I don't know, something like 13 shots and like just says, you have to drink them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, another stage, Eddie, I can't remember if it was me or Sam or both of us, but pulls one of us by the back of our hair and pours drink down our throat. Uh, it was that kind of a night. Mm. Earlier in that day, someone had asked Michael Clark. If it wasn't that day, it was maybe another day of that test. A friend of mine called Amitosh, who went on to work for NDTV, sorry, was working for NDTV at that time, Amitosh Singh, he asked Michael Clark about Michael Clark's bat sponsor, mm-hmm. which was Spartan, probably just because he was interested and because, you know, it was a bit of a, a, a story for NDTV to run with. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Amatoj ends up at this nightclub with us, and we're there, and me, Amatoj, trying to think who else was in the semicircle, but there was a couple of us in the semicircle, journalists. Maybe Bretig might have been there. He was certainly around as well. We're in this semicircle, and Michael Clark comes over. We had been chanting weird things all night, like, mm. Rhino, 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 like, because we were with the players, uh, and they were doing it as well. Suddenly, it's me, Amatoj, two other people, and Michael Clark comes over, and he says, thank you so much for mentioning my bat sponsor. That's a huge thing for me. And I was like, even as drunk as I was, and I was barely conscious, I was like, oh, my God. He's just thanked the journalist for mentioning his bat sponsor. Mm. And then I, being me, and not knowing where to take the conversation at that very moment, I start going, Spartan, Spartan, Spartan. <laughs> Suddenly, Clark starts doing it as well. Then Amatodge is doing it. Suddenly, we have this semicircle of maybe seven or eight people, random punters from the nightclub start coming out, and we are like arms around each other, end of the night style, <laughs> all going, Spartan, Spartan, Spartan. And I remember thinking, Oh, I've written all these words about Michael Clark already by this point. Mm-hmm. And here I am with Michael Clark at a nightclub at two, three in the morning, absolutely paralytic, and we are chanting his new bat sponsor's name. It's not like the others, and it's really hard not to focus <laughs> on that. So, Savash, thank you very much for coming on to my podcast to let me talk at you. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at Cricket Couch on Twitter. I'm also on the Twitters. Please review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And thank you to all those people who've said the lovely things that they have said. Please say many more lovely things about me. Patreon helps fund this series. And thank you so much to all the people who support us on Patreon. So if you can help out, please go over there and support us. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston pours liquid gold into your ear. And the theme tune is by The Red Cricket. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. 
Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.